Welcome to Saturday Night at the Movies, the podcast that celebrates classic, cult, and current films, and the people that made them, and many other aspects of pop culture. I'm your host, Steve Rubin. Our producer is Ben Shrewsbury, and our signature theme was composed by Greg Lerhoff. Here it's always Saturday night, and our mission is to <laughs> chronicle film and pop cultural history one memory at a time. Tonight we have a real treat, a frontline player and one of the most prolific casting directors in Hollywood history, who amongst many film and television titles cast such classics as the Rocky Horror Picture Show, Grease and Aeroplane. He's also the author of a new autobiography from Bear Manor Media entitled Sex, Drugs and Pilot Season, Confessions of a Casting Director. Welcome, Joel Thurm. Well, thank you very much for having me. Thank you. It's, you know, it's, I, I just love having people who have such great resumes because there are so many stories. Um, I've been studying films since college. Uh, I didn't, I wasn't a film major. I was actually a history major, but I wrote for the Daily Bruin at UCLA, got my journalistic uh, things there. But then I started interviewing people in the film business for a book I wrote called Combat Films, American Realism, 1945 to 1970. So I waited and gradually and eventually became a publicist for about 25 years. Uh, I wanted to ask you a question. Um, we just got through watching the Academy Awards. Mm -hmm. It's kind of a holiday in our house. So it's a ritual. We've been doing it for many years. I, I call it Gay Super Bowl. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, they've talked for years about adding a stuntman's category, feeling that they were kind of left in the lurch. But I've also wondered why casting directors are not offered Oscars. And do you have an answer for that? Yeah, the answer is call Helen Mirren's husband. I forgot his name. That's how much I think about him. Taylor uh, Hackford. Taylor Hackford was president of the most powerful, arguably the most powerful union, the Directors Guild, and he flatly refused. Um, if you'll notice, no American film has a credit that says casting director dot 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 and fill in the name. British films do, but um, you're only allowed to use casting by here. I guess, um, you know, I, I, they're afraid of using the word director. Wow. So that's the reason why. And I believe I have been told, I don't know this, you know, I've never met the man or, you know, uh, that he's the one who very much opposed this, as does the majority of the board of directors of the Motion Picture Academy. Now, a couple of years ago, there was even a casting director who was president of the Motion Picture Academy, a guy named David Rubin, who is really a super classy, incredibly well-spoken, all the things that I'm not. Um, <laughs> and even he couldn't get it through. So I don't know, it's just, it's, um, it's gonna take us, I don't know what it's gonna take, but that's the reason, or those are the reasons. Well, I think, uh, you know, for an organization that celebrates every element of show business, uh, supposedly, in fact, you you <clears throat> see it in the in memoriam section where they give credit to people who we've never heard of, but who were in various skills. So well, I think I think the, yeah. the, 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 the reasoning or the bad reasoning behind it is that the ca casting directors don't make decisions. The director, but then again, the director makes a decision about everything on the on the movie. So the director approves the hairstyles, and the director says, "No, I don't like that hairstyle." Well, 
you know, but but again, that's the uh, that's the illogic about why we don't why, why we don't get there. Where the how many people have you heard thank casting directors? You watch the Academy Awards. How many people thank the casting director? I you know, uh, my my tape ran out and it was so boring that I didn't bother <laughs> to find out the end. So yeah, the Oscars uh, needs a major makeover, and we all know that. Um, yeah. I we we love origins here at. Um, at Saturday Night at the Movies, Joel, and I know that when they read your book, they're going to learn a lot about your early life. But I have to ask you, one of the, the notes in the biography says that you grew up on a kosher dairy farm <laughs> in, near Brooklyn. In Brooklyn, yeah. I My thought Brooklyn was, a, was isn't, isn't Brooklyn like a city? Uh, how do you well, find it? Well, first of all, you got to remember, this is 80 years ago. I'm 80 years old. <laughs> and this was a part of Brooklyn called East New York. If you if you have you ever been on New York subway? I have. Did you ever look at the subway map and see where some of these routes wind up on the southeast corner of Brooklyn? That's where East New York was. It was a very uh, undeveloped, you know, not undeveloped. There were no, not acres and acres of land around. Everything was built on. But my grandfather's farm took about, I'd say, a third of a city block. Oh, OK. And <clears throat> there was a. Uh, and by the way, it wasn't the only one. There was another one, a much larger one, not not too far away. And my my grandfather, my uncles, my great uncles had farms in Queens and they all dealt in kosher milk. You're saying, what is kosher milk? Kosher milk means that you wave, you pay a rabbi to wave his magic wand or whatever over over the milk and say it's kosher. He certifies that the cows did not eat pork. <laughs> and which actually only many, many years later, I read the cows could have eaten pork accidentally in their feed. Remember the mad cow disease stuff that happened, you know, about 10 or 15 years ago? Anyway, and then you get to charge a couple of cents more per quart. I see. So I that's see. kosher milk. <laughs> <laughs> I once interviewed uh, Albert R. Broccoli, who produced the James Bond movies for many years. Yes. His family operated a, bro a broccoli farm not far from your your grandfather's dairy. Um, really? Yeah. The bro they, brought, they brought the broccoli seed to America. You know, the broccoli name wasn't just a name. It, it was oh, related to broccoli. I never knew that. That's good. Yeah. yeah and now cool. all sorts of kids across the country hate him. Because <laughs> he killed James Bond. Well, he's not that he killed James. No, but because if it was him, parents wouldn't be giving the kids broccoli, which most kids, little kids, hate. <laughs> no, that's true. It's true. Uh, actually, broccoli. He he didn't kill James Bond anyway. His daughter did, but that's Got another it. story. Um, now, I don't think any. I, I you probably when you were going to school, you probably didn't know what a casting director was uh, as you studied. I, by, by the way, I have to say there was a funny little story in one of your biographical notes that you became, I think you characterized yourself as the worst substitute teacher in history. <laughs> yes. And that you completely ignored the curriculum and brought art supplies in, et cetera. It sounded like Jack Black in uh, School of Rock. Exactly. I never thought of that, but the same, but substitute art materials for music. And this was while after I graduated, finally graduated college, and <clears throat> I was waiting for my show business jobs. So <clears throat> I made a living as a substitute teacher. You know, <clears throat> I didn't have to set an alarm clock because the calls would start coming in at like a little before 7 a.m., from the schools where I was then I was living on the Upper East Side. And I always got calls from the Upper Upper East Side, aka Spanish Harlem. Mm -hmm. 
I never got calls from the Lower East Side. <laughs> so that's where I did most of my teaching. And I say I was the worst substitute teacher, but uh, because I just didn't, I couldn't follow lesson plans. So I just brought art materials and I brought something else to the classes. So it wasn't a total waste of time for the kids. So um, what was the the catalyst that rocketed you into show business? Everybody has a as a moment or a mentor or somebody who gave them a break, what would you say was your first break? Well, I gave myself the first, my break at the show business. It wasn't someone else. It was me. It was, uh, I was going to Hunter College in the Bronx. Um, and I had been, I'm just moving this camera. It's just bothering me where the, where the computer is. And um, uh, all the, all the people in, it was called theater workshop anxiously looking for their summer stock jobs as actors and I fancied myself that I wanted to be an actor at that time or at least you know thought it was I didn't really want to be an actor I just wanted to be a star so <laughs> uh, but um and, and of course none of them found it but I was the, I've always been the practical one there was an ad in one of the you know either backstage or something like that or show business whatever those newspapers were and they said the, the uh, Tappensee Playhouse was looking for a box office treasurer and I applied and got the job you know so it uh that was my that was my first job and I got it myself <laughs> nothing to do with anybody else except me reading an ad and applying and it was a fat and, and that job taught me so much in addition to learning how a box office works and the fact that there are no matter how sold out a theater is there are always two extra seats waiting to be given away or sold just before curtain <laughs> in case uh you know uh joe and jill biden decide to go at the last minute there will always be tickets for them um but um uh but that but all the calls for the entire operation for the uh executive offices upstairs the production offices all the calls came through the box office so I got to learn the name of, you know, half the agents in town. I got to know half the agents assistants because you know how assistants talk to each other before their bosses get on the line. Well, that happened with many, many agents who later went on to become very successful agents or assistant agents who became, you know, later on. So that was my first big deal. Did you get a chance to uh, get up on that stage? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> no but um no no didn't were, were there any um players through your uh tenure there that i would know today or we would know today oh a lot of them well i mean i, I hadn't thought of that but uh eugene uh, uh gene gene wilder did rhinoceros oh, wow. in the zero mustel pie i don't know zero didn't do it there was then a very popular television panelist named arlene francis sure known for her panel being a really good panelist and the fact that uh, from her window on her apartment building uh, a barbell that was supporting a air conditioner fell on somebody and killed them which is not funny oh my uh, god it's horrifying yeah, i know but that's it but she was known for that um who else um there were there were people whose movie careers were ending or had ended and were now transitioning van johnson was another oh, i was just i was just thinking of van johnson today i was listening to uh, an Ann Miller song from On the Town called um, 
what is it called? It's uh, it's about the Neanderthal song. You know the song. I'm no, talking. I don't. I don't. Oh. I know. I know. And I can cook too. And I know Lonely Town, and oh, I know the opening number. <laughs> Modern Man is not for me. The, the the movie star and Dapper Dan. She says at one point, uh, Gable does nothing for me, nor does Mrs. Johnson's blonde boy van. And then I suddenly realized that Mrs. Johnson's blonde boy van had to be Van Johnson, of course. Well, you know, clever, clever lyric writing. <laughs> Very clever lyric writing. Absolutely. Absolutely. Did you see the Leah Delaria version? I did not. Leah's a really good friend of mine. I, I call her the gay brother I never had, you know, and uh, she was sensational in the Nancy Walker part. Oh, oh, fabulous. Yeah. Put well, her in a dress and a wig and she's she can do anything. <laughs> so you're working at the theater. Um, I think you, you're probably headed for Hollywood eventually, I would think. Well, eventually uh, it, it started when I got, again, I, a friend of mine called, um, who um, he called with, he said, there's a, there's an opening at David Merrick's office. Are you interested in applying? And I said, of course, you know, it's little steps like that. And I applied and got the job and my job was assistant to Merrick's general manager, which me and the guy's name was Jack Schlissel, who was the second most feared man on Broadway with Merrick being the first. <laughs> And Jack was the one who had to carry out all of Merrick's, you know, nefarious, you know, ideas and deeds and like not paying bills or I won't pay that and wind up paying him half of what they asked. That was Jack's job. And it was a purely business job. But again, I learned. I learned about contracts. I, you know, I, and it, I, I would have to negotiate contracts and then also type the contract. And if I made a single error, it meant five carbon papers of diff five different copies in different color paper. So I learned to be. I learned. I mean, it was it was it was a great experience. And then one day, um, Jack called me into his office and with a rough voice, "Get in here." I get in and literally. He said, I can't stand working with you anymore. So you've got a you got a choice. You can go work with Biff Liff, who was in charge of production, which included casting and everything else, literally for production, except money. And um, you can reopen our casting department, become our casting director, get a small raise uh, or you're fired. That was how I became. And I said to Jack, I don't know anything about casting. And he said, yes, you do. You just don't know you do. And this is all based on conversations that we used to have before starting work. Work uh, Show business hours are generally 10 to whenever, 10 a.m. And because I only lived two subway stops away, it took me literally five minutes to get there. And I'd always bring up coffee and bagels and we'd sit and talk before work. So on the basis of those early morning conversations, that's how he knew that I would be good at this. And that's, and again, it's a Cinderella thing. It's like, you know, that doesn't happen very often. Poof, you're a casting director. <laughs> so uh, for the listeners who aren't familiar with David Merrick, I believe it, he's known, uh, well, not primarily, but one of his famous uh, shows was uh, uh, The Elephant Man. Wasn't that one of his? Um, I don't think so. And that's, oh. that, and if it would have been, believe me, that would have been a minor one. How about Gypsy, Hello, Dolly, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, Carnival. I can go on and on, but you see where I'm going. Sure, sure. <laughs> what was the first big show you got a chance to cast on your own? Well, the first, I mean, it wasn't on my own, but replacements in Hello, Dolly. Oh. Hello, Dolly had been running, I don't know how many years by that time, and was on its fifth Dolly. 
and that fifth dolly was Pearl Bailey. Okay. And that's how I met Pearl Bailey, who basically changed my life. So I became the, the company manager of, of Pearl. So and and after first I was company manager, and then when I got moved into casting, I did all the replacement casting and uh, national tour casting. You know, uh, not the original because I was way too young to have cast the original one. <laughs> was well, forgive me for my naivete. Or Ethel Merman was she an early? Uh... You know, I thought, oh no, oh god, you really are movies. You're you get you get a minus one on Broadway. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm the first to admit it. Absolutely. Well, you know, well, I, I have to get this joke in because it's true. It's like uh, you you said you're friends with Randall Kleiser, or you you I know. Am. All right, you are friends. All right, so um, Randall Kleiser directed the uh, the largest grossing musical of all time called Grease. Correct. And I was, you know, but um, what uh, what I said to, about Randall uh, sort of after the fact was, and by the way, one of the reasons Randall took that job is I promised to be on the set every day. I had I knew the show backwards and forwards. He knew nothing. But the line is, I said, I don't talk about Randall. Not only are you not a musical comedy queen, you're barely a lady in waiting. So. <laughs> well, I want to get to Greece. Obviously, that's going to be fun. But I, I, I want to do this in order now. No, go, go back. I, I tend to, you know, go off on. No, tangent. that's fine. That's fine. So, uh, being the, being the. Um, uh the maven in theater tell me the order of the dollies uh okay um carol channing ginger rogers um on broadway martha ray uh betty grable and pearl and they went carol channing being the cartoon being carol channing ginger right. rogers being totally totally boring <laughs> uh, um uh what do you call it? martha ray being wonderful quite wonderful her speeches her serious moments were incredible um and then pearl and then following pearl phyllis diller who was oh wonderful goodness. who was absolutely wonderful uh and following phyllis diller ethel merman who the show was written for but she turned it down see i wasn't that far off no you weren't you weren't all right so as so i said we well, were a lady in waiting and maybe you know maybe you'll become anne boleyn a little while you work your way up you know <laughs> and, of and of course you cast airplanes so you got an ethel merman moment anyway later on well th that was the first that's i think that's how i got the job because i did that job was not given to me i was i believe in i was suggested by an agent who suggested my name to the to the airplane boys to the zuckers and abrams and jim abrams and I went in to meet them. And the first question was, what do we do about Ethel Merman? And I said, well, <laughs> duh, have you ever thought of asking Ethel Merman? <laughs> and the line was, would she do something like this? And my answer was, she's in makeup circling the building. Of course she'll do something like this. Name me the last movie she was in. <laughs> exactly. exactly. So that's what happened. Later I found out that was not the intent of the question. The question was, what if we don't get Ethel Merman? That's what the that really meant. And had I understood that question, I would have said, well, then Carol Channing and Eartha Kitt in that order. Because well, they all have signature songs. Airplane is is such a favorite of mine. I, I've probably seen it 50 times. Uh, it's kind. I'm also a comedy writer. So obviously it's kind of a great inspiration on many levels. We can get into it a little bit here. Please. What was your, what was your first impression of the Zuckers? Well, well, I was lucky enough, or 
you know, not lucky. Well, the lucky is the wrong word because a part of my job as a casting director and also my own enjoyment was seeing things. And uh, they had an improv uh, show in LA called Kentucky Fried Theater. And that's when I first saw their work. I didn't meet them, but I saw their work and that was important. Then a guy I knew named Neil Israel directed a movie called Kentucky Fried Movie, which I saw. So I went in to meet them knowing what their humor was. And also when I read the script, I knew what their humor was. So, and I was embarrassed to go in for the meeting because the cover of the script was filled with coffee stains from choking and laughing as I was reading the script with my morning <laughs> coffee. <laughs> um, was anybody in place when you arrived or was it all open no, territory? all open. So tell me about Robert Hayes. I mean, Robert Hayes was just a wonderful kind of, uh, I guess you'd call him the straight man in the piece in certain ways. Uh, yeah. uh, where did he come from? Well, I had, I, the year before that, I had produced a TV show called Angie. And the two stars were Donna Pescow and Robert Hayes. Oh, okay. Now, I didn't know Robert Hayes before doing Angie, but I certainly knew him because I cast and produced that Angie, which ran for two years on television. Um, initially, I did not think of Robert Hayes because he the, uh, initially Paramount wanted movies, a movie star, two movie stars, but but most important, a male movie star. And for everyone turned it down. Literally every name you could possibly think of turned it down. Um, and um, you know, uh, uh, Joel, why do you think they turn it down? What essentially has become such a classic? Because no one got it. Oh. You had to be. You had to have a certain mind to to understand what the humor was, and if you didn't know the Airplane Boys' work beforehand, you might not get it from the script. Peter Graves didn't get it from the script. You know, his kids were the ones who said, "Dad, you got to do this." You know, he was said, "What is this crap? I don't get this." But it was perfect because he had to just play Peter Graves. But I, I like instinctively, I knew that those characters to work had to be played straight. Paramount didn't know they had to be played straight. Their casting suggestions to um, to them were like the, off the wall. I mean, just crazy ones. Dom DeLuise and even, although they deny it now, uh, Mike Eisner, uh, uh, what do you call it, suggested Barry Manilow. For what part? For Robert Hayes' part. <laughs> but what happened was I I had to wait till um, Paramount got over there. We have to have a star before I could bring Robert Hayes in. So he came in towards the end of the casting process, but he was perfect for it. Oh, sure. Sure. And Julie Haggerty? Julie Haggerty, I can take no credit for. Um, I was working with a wonderful casting director in New York. Uh, she worked for Paramount in New York named Gretchen Rennell. And Gretchen did that. She brought her in. And uh, the story that I heard, uh, David, I think it was David, um, David Zucker was going into the auditions at the Paramount building in New York, and he got into an elevator, and then Julie got into the same elevator, and he's saying to himself, oh my God, I hope she's one of the actresses who's reading, I hope she's one of them, and she was. Oh, that's classic. That's classic. So I love to take credit for it, but as I, I don't take credit for other people's work. Are casting directors um, like that? Do they help one another out? Is there a certain competitiveness or is there a certain loving quality about it? More than not, it's, it's, it's helping each other out. 
it's helping each other out uh you know you call uh, it, danny devito um i met danny devito because i was cast when i was casting starsky and hutch and the it was a small you know guest role of a friendly neighborhood loan shark he wasn't the he wasn't the guest star he was just a you know one of the characters and the um the director was a classy director from uh, european director who'd done some really good work and uh how he got to starsky at hutch i don't know but he did very good work and he and i and i knew who i uh wanted for that role who's a very good la actor would have been terrific and the, his, the by the way the, the director's name was Ivan Naj spelled N A G Y. Um, Czechoslovakian. Um, I, I'm not sure. I think Hungarian actually. Hungarian. Hungarian. But um, anyway, he said there's an actor in New York. He said he'll fly himself out. He'd be wonderful in this. Will you trust me on this one? So I, I and I so far I knew his taste was impeccable and and how badly could you screw up you know it wasn't that important of a role but I did call casting directors in New York and say look have you heard of a guy named Danny DeVito what do you know about him and they gave me you know said no they gave me you know, those that knew him uh, were gave very high marks so and that's how Danny but that Danny got to taxi because of Starsky. It's all working your way up through through sure. connections. Sure. You know, good work begets good work. Was Cuckoo's Nest later? It was later, wasn't it? Or no, was it... it was earlier. It was around okay. the same time. But okay. again, it was such a small role in it, and it was okay. more visual. But again, I had been told by the writers of Taxi, don't waste too much. Don't waste too much of your time trying to find a perfect Louis. He's never going to have more than two lines a show. We just need a funny-looking guy. <laughs> Go figure. <laughs> Go figure. Now you mentioned that Peter Graves had to be persuaded by his kids to take the role of the uh, of the pilot. Uh, what about Leslie Nielsen? Um, Leslie Nielsen, the the guys wanted Leslie all along. Oh, okay. They had seen him do a um, uh, one of the talk shows. Uh, could have been Carson. Maybe probably was Carson. And I hadn't seen it, but I guess you know he uh, he was he was very funny on it. And as Peter Gray, as as Nielsen later on had said, that he was always miscast, that his real bent is comedy, and he never should have been doing all those dramatic, you know, waspy villains. That's so right. They had seen him do that, but we had already worked out a plan where we would offer that role to every famous actor, uh, you know, who had played a doctor. So it was Jack Klugman. Um, what's his name? Um, oh God, his name just went out of my head. Doctor Kildare, uh, Richard Chamberlain, Richard Chamberlain, um, Robert and, Young, Ben Robert Casey, Young. Robert Young. They were all offered it. the The one who came a little bit close was Robert Young, but that was it. But they all passed, and so we went to Plan B, and the Plan B was Leslie Nielsen. I mean, the, the film is loaded with character actors and just former leading men. I mean, um, Lloyd, Lloyd Bridges, Bridges, Robert Stack, Bridges, Robert Robert Stack. I don't think had ever been in a comedy that I know of, and uh, Lloyd Bridges as well. I mean, they were all dramatic actors. Uh, well, the I, did, I I I knew Lloyd Bridges not personally, but I knew Bo Bridges moderately well, and through Bo, I had met the family, so I I knew that Lloyd had a sense of humor. But um, but I didn't know that he would go quite as wacko as he did in the movie. But that's what that was. The script was there, and he was encouraged to do that, and he did it. 
you know, Robert Stack had a much, much straighter role. Well, uh, Lloyd Bridges, I, I picked the wrong day to give up glue sniffing. I mean, it's just one after the other. It's just one. I mean, well, Lloyd got it. He, you know, he got it and went with it and ran with it. <laughs> now, I have to say that one of my favorite moments, and, and there's, it's hard to say favorite moments, the whole movie's a favorite moment, is Barbara Billingsley doing jive to the black actors. Yeah. I, uh, Whose inspiration was Barbara Billingsley? Me, but um, to me, but she was the second choice. But oh. it's the same. It's the same choice, but different. One generation down. My first. My first one was Harriet. Uh, Harriet Nelson. Oh, okay. The same joke. It's exactly the same joke. And my generation was Ozzie and Harriet. I never watched Leave It to Beaver. That was the next generation. Right. But when Harriet Harriet could not bring herself to say she. Uh, this is what we were told that uh, and david reported this david nelson that she couldn't conceive of herself saying motherfucker in a movie <laughs> and june cleaver had no problem saying that <laughs> and by the way it never made the final cut because that would have put it into a different either PD, whatever it was it would have put it into a different uh, category the story goes when they were selling the remake of leave it to beaver the writers invited barbara billingsley to come to the pitch meeting and bring cookies for the talent executives. It uh, it was well. That's crazy. very rude. Unless she was being paid a lot to do that. I'm or sure she got she, something, eh, <laughs> or she was in it. She, you the, know, the movie she, just uh, that tank, like most of the '60s remakes they did. Well, of course, you know that. But I don't. That's why I turned down every sequel that I was offered. <laughs> I didn't do Grease Two. <laughs> I didn't do uh, I didn't do Airplane Two. And I would joke. I don't do sequels. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I wish I had done The Godfather too. That would have been another story. <laughs> well, a couple of weeks ago, I um, I interviewed Andrea Eastman, and Andrea was the casting director on The Godfather, and uh, she didn't do the sequel either. I met Andrea Eastman in Summerstock, oh. in Tappanzi Playhouse in Nyack. Uh, I might as well tell the story. Why not? I've never told an Andrea Eastman story before. But the uh, when I worked at the Tappanzee Playhouse, it was owned by a couple, Honey, Wald, Honey Waldman, Bruce and Honey Becker. That was 1962. Um, I skipped 1963. But by 1964, Bruce and Honey Becker were no longer married. And Bruce had a brand new girlfriend named Andrea Eastman. <laughs> Oh, now why did you say you skipped 63? What does that mean? I was in Europe. That was my time in Rome. Oh, okay. okay. That was when I went, excuse me, I, I dropped my water bottle. Were you working in Rome? No, I flunked out of college accidentally oh. by withdrawing from a chemistry class that I thought I was going to be able to withdraw without it affecting my grades. Okay. Unfortunately, it did affect my grades, so I was invited to leave at the end of my sophomore year and all and having a great fascination with mythology uh, at that time uh i was either greece or rome and i figured i could learn italian better than i could learn greece greek easier than i could learn greek and so i just you know i, I took i asked my mother mother for my bar mitzvah money and i went to greece i went to rome <laughs> That was it. Uh, to me, yes. Rome is, it, it, you bend down to tie your shoe on a piece of concrete and you realize it's been there for 3,000 years. I mean, it's an incredible place. Yeah. I, I, my mother used to introduce me to romantic films of the 50s and 
I must have seen three coins in the fountain a dozen times. And Trevi is kind of like the place you have to go. Well, at, now it's Disneyland. So one does not go to Rome or Florence in the summertime at all. The, you know, now maybe maybe April and May go, but do not go anytime after that. It's completely, completely changed. But when I went there, it was like, do you know? Well, you you, you won't know street addresses in Rome, will you? But I was in a pensione at the top of the Spanish Steps. Oh sure, of course. One a dollar a night. Wow. But then it was if you took a bath, there was an extra dollar. And of course, food was separate if you ate their food. But I mean, so I was a 19 year old kid in Rome uh, with and I bought with on a Vespa. <laughs> on a Vespa. I on a Vespa. You know, it was great. That's great. That's great. Now, what what show was your first show in Hollywood when you what, uh, you arrived in California? When did you arrive in California? September 28th, 1970. Okay. I know that because my birthday is September 26th, and it was I was given a big, big going away birthday party. Um, yeah, September 28th, 1970, I came out to work on the Pearl Bailey television show. Okay. I left David Merrick. I left the best casting job in New York to, you know, because it was like my whole, my whole life has been, I never, I've never planned a single job move ever. It's always been you, I get offered something. Well, why not do it? So I, uh, my best friend had moved to California the year before, and I'd visited him at his house in Laurel Canyon. So I knew that if I took the job, I'd be living in his house. So all I had to do is sublet my very, very good New York apartment um, and, uh, you know, rent a car or, you know, and, and, and that's it, bring clothes. And that was it. So that's how I came to California. Were you a New Yorker who had driven before? Yes, but I didn't get, uh, I learned to drive when I was not 18, but maybe 19 or 20. I did. And I used to sneak out of my parents' house in Brooklyn, very quietly open the garage door and back out the car and go to Manhattan at night and fool around. <laughs> that's, a, that's another scene from a movie. That's Steve McQueen in The Blob. Well, I don't remember that, but yeah, I mean, I didn't, I, you know. <laughs> But no, that was it. And fortunately, I grew up and my father had my father had my father worked in my grandfather's grocery store. And uh, the cars that we had were Willie's Jeeps. They sure. were Willie's Jeeps, which I now you, you, you oh, my God, you have one of those. But at that time, I was embarrassed. Finally, finally, they bought a cheap Ford station wagon and I was able to drive it because it wasn't a stick shift. When I was in high school, I would look at the classified ads and what I wanted was a Willie's Jeep. Well, I wish you had known my father and his brother and my grandfather. <laughs> they would have sold it to you. Oh, that's very funny. So um, let's let's move back to Rocky Horror because that's another sure. very iconic movie. And yeah. certainly um, uh, tell us how you got involved with Rocky Horror. I got involved with Rocky Horror as a as the stage musical. Rocky Horror started in England, uh, the equivalent of off, off, off Broadway in a tiny, maybe a theater that seated, seated 25 people. Oh, my goodness. And then it moved, eventually moved into a theater that was about to be torn down, just like just like the script says, you know, where the script. Any, anyway, um, uh, Lou Adler, uh, who owned the Roxy nightclub, still does um saw it and bought all of the u.s rights and the movie rights and every right that was available he bought 
Now, I knew a man named Brian Avnet. There's no reason you would know him. But Brian was my boss when I worked at Westbury Music Fair. That was a step between Summerstock and David Merrick. Got it. It was, it was a notch up. <laughs> you know, each step was a little higher. Uh, and and um, uh, Brian had come out to L.A. and he was the general manager uh, for many different shows. And uh, by that time, I was working at CBS and I was an accomplished casting director with a couple of big credits, including the Bob Newhart show on television. And so he said, do you want to cast this thing called the Rocky Horror Show? And I'd heard about it. And I said, sure. So uh, it was the second time we actually worked together. So he introduced me to um, Lou Adler and I got the job doing casting the stage version at the Roxy. The movie followed almost immediately. Um, Meatloaf came from New York. Again, I worked with my very same friend, Linda Otto, and another, now she had another partner, I, which I, so Meatloaf came from that audition, but everybody else was from California. Uh, Barry Bostwick is who I wanted for Brad, uh, but he turned it down, but said if there was ever a movie, he'd love to do it. <laughs> and then the movie happened right after the stage show. And the stage show was very popular. It ran for nine months in LA, which is very unusual. How many people from the show came into the movie? Um, One. <laughs> Two. Meatloaf and Barry Bostwick. That's it. Oh, okay. Okay. So, Tim, how did Tim come to it? Tim was attached from the very genesis of the show, you know, 10 years before in England. I mean, he was, uh, he started it in England. That made his career, in period. But, um he was, you know, an actor for hire, doing all the normal things that Brit actors do, all the classics and all that. But he got it. He got cast in this, in, you know. And I just read a book. It's called um, "Rocky Horror: From Concept to Cult." Oh. <laughs> it's a great book to put you to sleep, by the way, because it's <laughs> so much useless information. But I learned a lot about the the very earliest origins of Rocky Horror. Sure, sure. So, and did, where did Susan Sarandon come from? Well, that's all me. Okay. Uh, it's all me. Uh, I knew Susan and her then husband, Chris Sarandon, also a wonderful actor at the time. He was not Academy Award nominee for Dog Day Afternoon. Right. Um, but I knew them as a couple in New York just through acting, you know, through through normal, normal thing. We were not great friends, but when they moved to California, I invited them to dinner at my house. Although I own the house, I couldn't afford the house, so I was in the guest apartment underneath the house. Uh, <laughs> one time, where, where I'm talking to you now, by the way, I'm talking to you from the former kitchen of uh, of, of my see kitchen cabinets. So this used to be the. Um, anyway, I assume you can afford it now. I, you know, well, if I tell you how much I paid for this house, you're going to just cut me off the screen. <laughs> Twenty two thousand five hundred dollars. Oh, my goodness. Okay. I, I, I'm going to divert for a little bit, but you'll get me on track. One of the things I always do when someone's been good to me, I always try to pay them back in some way. My taxes on this house are a year, $900. Because, because in California, there's something called the State Proposition 13, which fixed taxes at the of what, what you paid for it. So my taxes are based on the original, the original purchase price, not what's happened to the neighborhood, where that won't even get you a parking space in Laurel Canyon. <laughs> but, 
But the, the, the state law that did this was called the Jarvis Amendment, sure. Howard Jarvis. When you go back to watch airplane for the 400th time, in the taxi cab driving up to the airport is Howard Jarvis in the back of that cab. Is he the one who's sitting there at the end? Still yes, waiting? still waiting. <laughs> that was my way of thanking Howard Jarvis for a financial anchor that has saved my life. And see, I always do pay my pay my debts. Sure, so getting sure. back to Rocky Horror. So we're having this dinner here. Uh, among the guests uh, were Barry Bostwick and his manager, Bob Lamont, who was my closest friend. Bob was a manager with great taste and great clients, which included John Travolta, Catherine Helmond, uh, who was from there, from Who's the Boss? Um, what do you call it? Uh, the, the other, uh, blah, blah, blah. Anyway, Patrick Swayze at one point. Sure. Uh, I mean, a, a, you know, incredibly talented people. Holland Taylor, who now lives down the street from me, but that's a whole oh. other story. I love um, her. She's always great. Always, always, always. Um, but I lost track a little bit. Anyway, so that was that. Was that. Uh, dinner is so over. talking about Susan Sarandon. Susan Sarandon, yeah. So that dinner party, and that was it. Um, Bob calls me the next day. And he said, well, did you see what went on last night? I said, no. He said, "The what happened was Barry Bostwick and Susan Sarandon locked eyes. Great sexual tension going between them. Chris was in the bedroom watching with Randall Kleiser, a, a horrible, not horrible, but a television movie called The Killer Bees that starred <laughs> Gloria Swanson. <laughs> and Chris, uh, not Chris, um, you know, Barry and Susan locked eyes. And two or three days later, she left Chris and she and Barry began dating. So uh, their marriage was on the rocks anyway. It wasn't that one thing. Um, but what happened was... Um, Barry Bostwick didn't know this, but he was a lock for the movie. The director, Jim Sharman, had seen his Broadway work. Barry had won a Tony in New York. So he knew that's what he wanted. But Barry didn't know this. So Barry and Lou Adler didn't really know who Barry Bostwick was either. So for when it came time for Barry's audition, oh, before that, I had called Susan's agents her brand new, very high-powered agents to say, I would like to set up an audition for Susan for, for the, this Rocky Horror Show. And the snotty young agent who hopefully learned his lesson said, uh, oh, no, no, this is not the kind of project we want for her, and she certainly won't audition. Now, there comes a time when actors should not audition, but Susan was definitely not at that stage yet. And I said, oh, you're going to play that kind of game? You haven't met me. So uh, I just called Barry. I actually called Bob Lamond, who told Barry, Joel said, bring Susan with you to your audition, and Joel will take care of everything else. And Joel did. Because while I was reading with Barry Bostwick on stage, after two lines, I said, you know, this is really silly. Uh, Susan, would you mind helping me as a reader? Could you read with Barry? So she went on the stage, not to audition, but to help me as a reader for the person who was auditioning. And uh, the minute they saw her, who is she? Who is that girl? Can she sing? And that's how Susan got in the movie. Now, she was in The Other Side of Midnight, which was very highly touted. But is that later on? I, guess that I think was that was later. What she was... had done before that was a very high-rated TV movie called The Last of the Bells. 
D-E-L-L-E-S. And it was based on an F. Scott Fitzgerald book or novella or whatever, or story. And um, Susan played a, I'm not, Susan played a, like a, it was like a movie within a movie. Uh, Blythe Danner played Zelda Fitzgerald. Right. And, and and Susan played the character in the movie within the story within the movie. And it was a hugely successful TV movie. Hmm. Interesting. So that was her biggest credit up until that time. Joel, um, Rocky Horror w was shot in L.A.? No, it was shot in London or outside of London. Oh, really? Yeah, they okay. took everybody to London. Uh, from what I've heard, it was one of the worst shoots of ever. You know, it was freezing cold. Uh, their outdoor scenes were miserable. There wasn't enough heat or blankets or whatever for the cast. Uh, and the interiors were not much better. And Susan and Barry had were no longer dating, shall we say, by that point. Oh, um, well, so the, the uh, bloom was off that rose. Yes, it was. Interesting, interesting. So let's come to Greece. Greece, yep. of course, another very iconic film. Uh, I read that you were involved in casting John in The Boy in the Bubble. Is that true? Well, it, it wasn't just casting. I produced The Boy in the Plastic oh, Bubble, okay. oh. which was not only, it was the highest rated, it was the most seen movie on television in 1976, which was two years before Greece. Greece was 78. Right. Pre-production, I guess, and casting happened late into 77. But I put that package together. I didn't just cast the movie. Uh, I was I was working full time for uh, Spelling Goldberg, casting Starsky and Hutch, helping to cast the pilot of Charlie's Angels, you know, just doing what I call meat and potatoes. You know, these were not award winning shows. They were just incredibly popular. Sure, of course. Of so course. Um, had you, you, had, you had discovered Farrah Fawcett, hadn't you? I would like I discovered her, but nobody paid attention. She I met her in my office. And remember, people very often say to me, "Well, some how do you tell how what, how do how do you tell when someone's going to be a star or whatever?" And I use the example of Farah. Farah came into my office at a general interview way before no posters, no Charlie's Angels. It was a new client of a good agent who happened to represent a lot of attractive women. That was kind of his specialty. He he worked very well with women. Who was that? Uh, John Crosby was his name. He's no longer with us. Um, I, I, there's another, another uh, Renee, what's her name? Renee, movie, older movie star, probably, you know, about 60, whose last name I forgot, was another one of his clients at that time. But Farrah came in and without the hair, without the makeup and anything, but I knew there was something there. Also, how many people have you ever met named Farrah? <laughs> you know, so... Um, uh, and I sent her and I brought her in to read for a stewardess on the Bob Newhart show. A stewardess. It, it, it was, uh, you know, I don't know how many lines, two scenes, maybe three scenes, not very many lines. And um, after and she read if there's a scale from like one to ten, she was about a six and a half to seven. The woman who got the part read better. And she was very pretty. And but she did give the best reading. But I said to the guys, but and but for this one, Farah, Farah put on makeup and the hair was done. She looked very different and, you know, pulled together than when I first met her. And I said to the guys afterwards, yeah, she gave the best reading. But did you not happen to notice this girl, Farah Fawcett? Did you not see what I see in her? I said, guys, I'm the gay one in the room. You guys, you're supposed to pick up on that, not me. And uh, <laughs> But she didn't get the job.
So, and if she'd gotten a job, Charlie's Angels may never have happened for her. <laughs> so before we talk about tra the, the Travolta and Greece. Oh, we talk about Boy in the Plastic Bubble. That's right. 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 How but that I wanted to out. ask you, um, actors do a lot of different things to get attention when they're first starting out. What is What would you say was one of the more outrageous things an actor did in his attempts to see to get in to see you? Have there been any stories there you can share? Well, there are a couple. <laughs> the first one is a woman hired a skywriter to oh my goodness. over Burbank. Joel Thurm cast me. Please really? cast me. And, when, and it made the news, you know, of course, the NBC news. And how could I not meet her after that? So I did. Uh, nothing happened, but I met the woman. I thought that was very clever. Um, did she ever I, develop a career that you know of? No, 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 she didn't. Um, then there was another woman whose name, but she took, she had a rich husband and put billboards all over LA with her in a nurse's uniform and a cop uniform as a teacher. And somehow I, she got in to see me and her name was Marae Ayers, that I remember. It's an odd name. She never went anywhere either. None of those people who tried those outrageous things. I have a better outrageous story that happened to David Merrick. It's apocryphal. It should have been in my book. Why I didn't put it in there? An actor had himself crated and delivered to Merrick's office. And then when the crate was open, the actor popped out and Merrick looked at him and said, schmuck, <laughs> and walked back <laughs> in his office. Oh, my God. That's almost like the screenwriter who wrote a script called The Ticking Man and sent the script to Universal with a ticking clock in the package. Well, Can you, you know, know that's a, that's a little less, uh, what do you call it? Uh, oh, that's pretty crazy. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but no, 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 no one's done. Um, I, th th that was about the most outrageous thing. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. Now let's get back to John Travolta. So you cast him in The Boy in the Bubble. No, I put the, oh. I put the entire project together. You, put the, you were the producer. You were the what guy. What happened was there was a woman named Cindy Dunn who was in charge of developing scripts for, for Spelling Goldberg. Right. And a Friday afternoon, she walks in looking dejected into my office. And I said, what's up? You look terrible. She said, well, ABC just passed on my favorite script that I've been developing for two years. And she said, could you do me a favor? They said they would they would do it. They might do it if we came up with great casting, big enough names. So she said, can you do me a favor and please read this? And I said, Cindy, that's my job. It's not a favor. And I read it that Saturday. I read it the next morning. My reading script um, pattern was to read a lot of material on Saturday with my friend Bob Lamond, Travolta's manager. So Travolta, and this is this is this is in May sometime, or May or maybe even yeah, probably in May. And he John is driving him crazy because John wants to do something else besides Vinnie Barbarino. He was a huge star by that time because of Welcome Back, Cotter. His face was on every teenage magazine. He was big and, you know, it's and just beginning to peak. And um, it was just peaking, I should say. And I read the script and I said, Bob, here, you know, I, I, the phrase I Bob had said, I, I got I got to pull a rabbit out of a hat, which is not a phrase I would use for John. And I threw the script to him. I said, here's your rabbit. He reads it. He agrees with me. He gives it to John. John reads it Sunday. 
Sunday afternoon, Bob calls me and said, Travolta wants to do it. And so I walk in Monday morning and I walk into Cindy and I said, do you think John Travolta is the big, big enough name to do this? He was also an ABC star, by the way. So this is all for ABC. And she said, you're kidding. He wants to do this? I said, yeah, yeah. And then went to Aaron and Len, neither one of whom believed me at first. I said, how do you know? I said, just, I know he wants to do this. They called ABC and Mike Eisner said, why would he want to do this? He's turned down everything we've offered him. It finally became real when they said, let us make the offer. And they made, we made a, uh, not an offer, but offer what was in the budget. John's people came back and he got three times more than that, but he said, yes. So John saying yes, <clears throat> made it the project real. And then I had already suggested Randall to Spelling Goldberg to do directing chores on, on he did he did a family, I think he did. He also did, uh, did a few others, you know. Um, and so I said, you know, I think Randall Kleiser would be very good directing this piece. They agreed. So I put, uh, so Cindy got the director, Cindy got the script. I got the star and the director. Oh, so Randall directed The Boy in the Bubble? Yes, he did. Oh, okay. So now we see the connection, Bob, moving on to Greece. I exactly, see. exactly. So so that's what happened. And I went to Cindy uh, and I said, you know, after the, the puzzle was put together and I said, you know what? You developed this. I added this. We should produce this movie. And so we went to Aaron and Len. We weren't expecting any money because we were year-round employees. So... Um, but what we did say is, but we want producer credit if we're going to do this. And we got a definite maybe. <laughs> and what did that eventually lead to? Well, eventually, once the rough cut was done and there was a, you know, ABC loved the rough cut. The, the, you know, there they were no changes to be made. We just had a trim here and there for time. Um, uh, that's when I went to, uh, uh, what do you call it? It said, um, to, um, it was, yeah, I, it, I'm in the bathtub at home with a joint and a glass of wine with a <laughs> phone on a long cord and the phone rings. Can you hold for Mr. Spelling? So I sober up in instantly a little bit. And uh, Aaron says, we, the ABC loved the rough cut and we're going to give you and Cindy producer credit. But I had to fight Len. Len didn't want to do it. Oh. That's on a Friday. On Monday, I go in the office and Len calls. Or oh, it says, come, come into the office. There wasn't a phone call. He tells me the same story in reverse. He tells that he didn't want to give us credit. <laughs> Who cares? I got the effing credit. <laughs> so Alan Carr is the prime mover on Greece. Yes. Had you known him before you got involved with that film? Yeah, I'd known him just from being around. Just from being around. I never had worked with him. But I, I take it back. I worked with him ages and ages ago. But he didn't even remember this. I didn't work with him directly, but I was managing Westbury Music Fair. Okay. And we did a show that Roger Smith was in. At Westbury, not only did musical things, at a certain point they did plays. And so Roger Smith was in a play, and Alan Carr was his manager at that point. And so, Anne Margaret's husband, Roger Smith? Yes. Anne, okay. yes. And uh, also 77 Sunset Strip, Roger sure. Smith. Of course. So um, anyway, so that's when I first met Alan. He didn't remember that, but I, I knew who he was. And by that time, by the time of, uh, the, of Greece, I mean, Alan, Alan, you know, made him Alan's greatest gift was promotion. 
his worst gift was producing, actually producing a movie. If you, I'm not going to go into this now, but every project that he did by himself was a huge flop. Grease 2, Where the Boys Are, 84. He just, he just, his ideas were ridiculous, left unchecked. If you checked him, he was fine. <laughs> he paid a porn star, Harry Reams. You know, he offered him the Sid Caesar role as the coach. Oh, my God. And, but, but on his own, without telling Paramount. No, and he paid him $5,000. Um, I I submitted my casting list to, to Paramount. What you do is when a casting director gives a list to the producer, to the studio, or the network. The top of my list for the school principal is Eve Arden. It was a list of one. <laughs> you know, because... You know, uh, and he had already promised that to his friend, a friend, Fanny Flagg, a writer, Fanny Flagg, a very wonderful woman. And I said, you know, it's like, but Paramount and in the form of Marion Dougherty, who was head of casting for Paramount, Par Marion knew me from New York and she knew that I could do trash or class. You know, Marion also said she knew nothing about pop culture and was thrilled that I was doing movies like Airplane and Greece because she couldn't contribute to them. But I could, be, you know, just different. Sure. She had lots of other assets, by the way. That wasn't it. So um, anyway, uh, Paramount well, preferred my choices to Alan's choices. Sure, of course. Which of course. irked him to to a, to a great degree. And and finally, I committed a, a real sin. Olivia Newton-John, John was fine. Olivia Newton-John asked for a screen test because she wasn't sure she wanted to do the project. She had a tremendous career going as a pop star. Tremendous. Um, I, I'd say close to number one in the world at that time. And uh, she didn't want to be embarrassed. She had done a movie a couple of years before that, which she was you know, terrified of making the same mistake. And she was a couple of years older than John. She, was, she thought that that might not work either. But she met John and liked him a lot. And she asked for a screen test. So we're doing the screen test. And there's no laughter. This isn't a cheapo little tape thing. This is a full studio screen test. So this, is, this is not a singing test. No, not a. You don't. Have, Lillian and John did not need a singing test, please. Of course. So e even Paramount knew that. But um, it was. Uh, but she asked for the test, not Paramount. Paramount would have been perfectly happy with her. She asked for the test. That's the important thing. Uh, we were using the movie script. And we're doing the scene at the drive-in and the crew that never heard these words before is not laughing. Second take, no laughter. Third take, no laughter, dead silence. And John, you know, was gone. John was getting a little rattled because he knew there should have been laughter. Not so quite sure about Olivia. Well, um, excuse me, uh, let me stop you for a second. It's a screen test. Where is this laughter supposed to be coming from? From the crew, there are fifty technicians. There are cameramen. There are sound oh, people. So, in other words, they, 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 the crew is allowed to laugh on a screen test. I, I guess. Uh... Of course, they are. Okay. I mean, maybe you didn't know that, but it's, if it's a comedy movie, yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> if it's a serious movie, no. But right. if it's a comedy, to hear the crew laughing, laughing. is Got great. It. That's what you want. They're the audience. So you got stone silence instead. Yeah. And and then I I did something because I, I read and occasionally I remember things. But when Gower Champion, Champion was doing Hello, Dolly on Broadway, he always carried a small copy in his back pocket of The Matchmaker written by Thornton Wilder. 
And when Michael Stewart's dialogue wasn't working, he would pull out his script from the matchmaker and say, try this line from the original. And that line usually worked. So I did the same thing. I pulled out this, the script, my, my play script from my back pocket. The Samuel French things are very small. They're like this size, you know, or less. Sure, of course. They, they fit in your back pocket. And um, I went, turned to the scene. I said, oh, here's why it's not working. The dialogue is totally changed. So I gave John and Olivia the play dialogue. The next take, the crew is laughing. The second take, they're laughing. You know, and I and I knew had Olivia had we not gone to that move, Olivia would have passed. Well, Randall so, was obviously there at that point, shooting the test or not. You know something? Yes, Randall was there, of course. Yeah. Of course. yeah. Okay. Alan Carr wasn't there. Ah. But I mean, he that was part of his job. He should have been there. And the writer should have been there. That's I mean, I, I, why they would weren't there, I have no idea. This is so important to him. Maybe he thought, "Oh, forget it. They, you know, I'm going to get who I want anyway, or whatever." But he didn't show up. So, but um, was but any, uh, Joel was anyone ever considered beyond Travolta? But Travolta was a no. Superstar, Travolta right. was the reason that the thing was made. Got it. Travolta was the reason. The, the, the you know, money always rules. No matter what you think. Money rules. And Par the only way Paramount was going to get that movie distributed was with John Travolta in it. Sure, sure. Of course. Of course. So so that was that was that. Um by the way, a couple of weeks ago I interviewed Eddie Deason. Oh. And Eddie is trying to make a little bit of a comeback. Uh he's uh, a good friend of a friend, and uh, he said some nice things about you. And uh of course Eddie had a small part, but a good part. He had a very good part, and he was terrific. He was terrific, and and th this is not rocket science. I'll get back to Alan Carr in a minute. But when I saw Eddie's photo sent in by an agent, I didn't know him before. I showed the photo to Randall. I said, "We gotta. Be, this is our Eugene. If he can speak, he's our Eugene." <laughs> and when he came into audition, we were hysterical. We were anything he said. You could. It was so perfect. And Eddie did contribute a lot to that movie. And he's a sweet, sweet guy. Sweet, sweet guy, um, definitely. But, but what happened was, um, so we switched dialogue. And, and they did the movie dialogue. And everybody saw the movie dialogue. That's what the direct, that's what all the Paramount executives, for, uh, they, uh, excuse me, they saw the play dialogue. Right. So what with, happened With the laughter. When, with the laughter and all. And But when Alan saw it, he was furious. And... After the but by, by, by this time Olivia had seen it and said she's in it. John had seen it is in it. So the movie is a go. So Alan is Alan on one hand has finally has approval to go ahead with the movie, but his dialogue was changed. And as we were walking to our cars in the parking lot, he glared at me and said, "Did I see the fine hand of Joel Thurman that test?" Me being like this innocent little kid bragging to his to his mommy and daddy, yeah, yeah, wasn't it great? <laughs> Literally, just like that. I thought uh -huh. I did something wonderful, and he thought I did something horrible. Uh -huh. So from that point on, it was a conspiracy to get all the of all of Alan and Bronte's work out of the script. And we did this, Randall and I figured out a plan, which is every day before rehearsal, whenever there was a comparable scene between the movie and the play, we would give the cast the play dialogue. 
the musical play dialogue. And then they would improv off of it. But basically, uh, not ba uh, at the end, when the, you know, the final shooting script had virtually none of the of Alan and Bronte's work in it. It was a mixture of their work, the play, the musical play, and the actor's actual improvisation. Mm, gotcha, gotcha. Which is the way it should be in something like this. Were, you were on the set a lot, I assume. Every day. Every day. What, what, uh, as opposed to Rocky Horror's the, the Nightmare in London for those people. Well, no, it was the only time I was ever on a movie on a movie set every day. And but part of that was Randall. Uh, Randall was afraid of it. Randall didn't originally didn't want to do it. And the only reason I shouldn't say the only reason, but one of the reasons he wanted to do is I promised I will be on the set every day. I know that pro that play inside and out. So that when some idiot suggested cutting, uh, there are worse things I can do, Stockard Channing's song, I said, is he fucking crazy? No way are you going to cut that. You know, to, to, this is to Randall, because Randall didn't really, you know, know at that point. Sure, sure. You, so, you, knew, you knew the, 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 the what you might call it. I knew the, the material. You knew the I, material. I was going to say the biblical writings, you know, that definitely. Yeah. Well, I know, yeah, and I, and and so and but, uh, but here's another thing that Randall didn't know about, uh, in of what Greece should be like. Um, on the set one day, Randall came in very dejected. Uh, we, I just was told that because of our budget, we can't go to Magic Mountain to shoot the last scene. And I said, "That's great. It shouldn't have been there in the first place. This should be like a little carnival that churches." do and schools do it should be a tacky little carnival not this huge roller coaster and rides that's not a casting comment that's a producing comment so i would I and i made him enthusiastic about it no that's just a wonderful wonderful money the transformation of uh of uh mad sandy <laughs> <laughs> none of i will tell you that's all olivia and her hairdresser and Albert Wolski, the costume designer. None of us knew that. Randall never approved a costume design or anything. She walked out of that. And I happened to be right in front of her trailer when she walked out. And Albert was still sewing her in. And he had to sew her into those pants because he found them in a thrift shop and it had no zipper. <laughs> <laughs> Very oh, practical reason. <laughs> That that dance has been it's kind of talk about iconic moments. Um, but that song was also written by Olivia's uh, composers. That was added. That song was never in the musical play. Wow! When they do the play these days, Joel, to your oh, knowledge, do they add that in? They added all the songs from the movie. Oh, okay. Well, first of all, the Summer Nights was in the original play. Summer right? Nights was in the original, okay. but the original ending was a song called "We Go Together." Which still we ends this movie, together, that, yeah. yeah. Which is now the very last song, but that, but uh, but you better watch, you better shape up. Was added just before that. Sure, sure, that's wonderful. Well, also, Sandy, John singing in front of the movie theater, and the movie screen was. By the way, I found the clip of the hot dog jumping into the bun. <laughs> that's a, that's also a very memorable moment. Yeah, and also. And Hopelessly Devoted to You was also written by Olivia's composers, oh. John Farrar, and I forgot his other name. But Olivia was very smart. And John, this is another thing that I feel badly about. Um, John asked indirectly, 
for and he was right he said i i uh i need a song in the first act danny had the only thing you have in the first act originally was summer nights right right which is a group number really and he um so and i without even thinking said well we don't have to write another song just give him the lead in grease lightning instead of knicky right right what a great moment that was of course it was a great but also pat birch the choreographer was very very loyal she was an originalist so a lot of these things that i came up with was like i was destroying the original creation but i don't think the creator because when i go back and look at that number now jeff is featured very prominently in that number with john right right he's wearing a brown leather jacket instead of a black one but i happened to see grease live the television version and they made a huge mistake by not giving Kaniki a different costume in that number. They oh. had him dressed as the chorus. Interesting, interesting. Anyway, but they didn't ask me. Go on. <laughs> I've got to tell you that one of my favorite TV shows that you cast, uh, in fact, it inspired me to become a writer, uh, was Family. I thought Family was a class act show. I was surprised it didn't last as long as it should have. Well, because it was too classy. <laughs> <laughs> It should have been on PBS. You know, it, well, look at the look at the name, look at the top of the mass list. You have Mike Nichols, you have Jay Preston Allen at the top. I don't know what other name was in there, but they were pretty big. Um, the, the most, the most, the only well-known name in that whole cast were, were was uh, uh, what's her name? God, uh, Meredith, Meredith Baxter. Meredith Baxter, sure. She was the only quote television-y person in it. So, but it was just wonderful everything. But again, it it always starts with the writing, you know. I, I it was it was just something very different. I got to I identified with young Gary Frank as the lead uh, young man, uh, being being wanting to be a writer. And of course, we all discovered Christy McNichol. And well, was no, that, that was not that Christy McNichol we used beforehand. That was not this. She did a uh, a pilot. She was did a, a, a TV a, a short live series when I was at CBS called Apple's Way. Okay, and she was the little girl in Apple's Way. Got it. Got it. I mean, you, I mean, but my history goes, you know. Sure. No. No. Of course. Of course. But Apple's Way was a flop. It was. There was this written by Earl St uh, the the guy uh, Hamner, the guy who wrote the Waltons, and sure. this was his follow up, which flopped. Uh well, this has been wonderful, Joel. I mean, I could talk to you for another two hours, but uh, we... we uh, Do it again. I mean, literally, you wind me up and I don't stop. No, no, it's great. It's great. I mean, I, I, I introduced you as a frontline player and we're getting frontline information. Everyone, we've been listening to Joel Thurm. Uh, his new book, I'll repeat it again, has a great title, Sex, Drugs, and Pilot Season, Confessions of a Casting Director. Of course, I have to ask you, was that your title? Yes, and I had the title before I started writing the book. Oh, One go. other thing I will get in there. I, are you going to cut this for time or do trends? No, 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 we don't cut. Oh, so we can go a little over then. We can go a little over. If you want to tell a story now, we're fine. No, I'm good. I'm good. Um, so uh, I went, I was, so now we cut to when I'm at NBC and I'm an established, you know, by this time I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big shot. <laughs> and when you're head of talent for a network, you really get a, a you know uh it's a big big boost it's like you know you get a lot of uh christmas cards i assume well you, you also not only get you get a lot of christmas swag ah and what i did is i took all the swag and i sent and a lot of it was initialed 
and I sent it all over to John Travolta. <laughs> perfect. <laughs> of course it was perfect. So, um, but uh, I, I, I'm trying to think, NBC, what was I talking about? NBC? Uh, you said that you, uh, now that you're in a oh, oh, yeah, 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 so, so, so. I was advised when I got to NBC that all of the, through uh, a friend of mine worked there, or a friend of a friend worked there, and he had clued me in. They said, all the secretaries they're going to show you, don't hire them. They're all terrible. He said, but uh, from the, the union resources or whatever, it wasn't called HR then, it was called something else. He said, but I worked with a temp who was incredible. See if you can get her. Her name was Arlen Phoenix. You might have her last name may res resonate because she had a few people who succeeded in show business that were her kids. So she's the mother of River, Rain, Leaf, Summer, and Liberty. Right. And, and she was a bit of a hippie chick, as I recall. She was very much of a hippie chick, not a little bit, but uh, but the best kind of a hippie. Right. I mean, with the values of, of hippiedom, you know, family comes first, you know, what, uh, in fact, right now she is running something called the River Phoenix Center for peace building, for nonviolence and peace building in uh, just outside of Gainesville, Florida. So that's where her head always was. But the minute she walked in, we, after three sentences, we knew that there was some sort of a connection of Brooklyn Bronx. She was from the Bronx. I was from Brooklyn, lower middle class, working class families. So there was a Jewish, <laughs> but not religious. I mean, there was a, an instant thing. And uh, she became my assistant after the, the, every, every, she came in and interviewed for the job. But then when we got serious about it, every time she said, well, I can't because, and one of them was, um, well, you know, I have five kids and a husband and who's going to make them dinner. I said, well, you know, you'll, she didn't live far away, too far away. I said, if you can't go home in time, have the kids come here. We'll bring in food for you and the family. She said, well, we're vegan. I said, there's a vegan restaurant three blocks away. I just found out what the word vegan had meant. So, <laughs> we, 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 so we ordered food for them. So the kids became regulars in my office. They loved coming to the office because they were not allowed to watch television at home. But they're in a studio and they didn't have junk food and candy, which was all over the place in my office in the conference room. So they loved coming to NBC. And I got to know all the I got to I got to know and love the kids, you know, and um, little Joaquin Phoenix. Who knew? Well, he wasn't Joaquin then. He was Leaf. Oh, he was Leaf. Oh, really? AF. Yes. And he worked as he did a few things. He did an incredible Hill Street Blues. I think it was Hill Street. Well, it's funny because uh, as Leaf. I worked on a film at New Century Vista in 87, which he appeared in called Ruskies. That I don't even, I remember the title. Yes. But didn't River do that too? No, it was just okay. Leaf, I yes. believe. And yeah. the lead was Whip Hubley, who would later yeah. have a part in Top Gun. Yeah, uh, Season uh, Hubley's brother. Season <laughs> Hubley's brother, exactly. exactly. But what happened was, um, so I, I, I uh, so, so no, no, okay. So I became fast friends with the family. They're like my family. Those are, those are all my nieces and nephews. Still friendly with, with, with Arlen. Well, her name was Arlen then, now it's Hart. Don't ask. I'll go back and forth between Hart and Arlen. And um, I was having, this is, I don't know, way out, by now, but the story I'm going to tell you now happens when Joaquin is now, by the way, his given name was Joaquin. Oh, that was okay. his given name. 
but he wanted a name like his brothers and sisters. Like right. he wanted an odd name. He wanted right. a name like Ooh. River, Rain, Leaf, Summer, and Liberty. He didn't want a normal name. But when he became a, obviously when he started working a lot, he became back to Joaquin. But um, so I'm having dinner with Joaquin and his mother, and uh, it, it's I, I can't tell when, but it was. I told you when he was now a star, but not not Joker star. And he's listening to his mother and I tell tell funny. Well, with a, with let me seventeen glasses of red wine. I like to say in the book, and a joint mysteriously appeared from my pocket. You know, <laughs> walking did not have any. By the way, this is just me and a little bit of Arlen. Um, and he he's laughing. He's laughing at all these stories that we're telling each other. And he said to me, "Man, you got to write this stuff down." And I literally, and my house is five minutes away. I went home and I started writing this stuff down. That's how the book happened. Perfect, perfect. Uh, Joaquin, of course, has become such a major, major star, and um, so happy for him. I know he had a troubled period, like well, like most of the Phoenixes had some trouble, but I don't think so. Not I so honestly don't. No, he's always been a very quiet, private person. And well, maybe what I meant by trouble is there was a period where he was a bit of an odd bird. And I think maybe some still of the, is. Yeah. <laughs> he hasn't changed. Well, I'll, I'll tell you what did change. I know where you're going with this. He did not change. What happened was he never used to do interviews. He wouldn't do any of that until the Joker. Ah, okay. Then there's a lead up to the Joker and the Academy Awards when all of a sudden he's doing this, he's doing that, he's doing magazine articles, he's he's doing 60 Minutes. And the best line on 60 Minutes was one that I gave to 60 Minutes because I would always tell his mother, you know, your son is an incredible actor, but a lousy movie star, meaning he doesn't go to premieres, he doesn't show up with this one, he doesn't do this and whatever that. But for Joker, he started doing them. So uh, and and Anderson Cooper used my line that a good friend of yours says that you're a great actor, but a lousy movie star. And he roared. <laughs> but he's reverted back to that now. You know, you haven't seen anything recently with him. No interviews. No. Now he's doing the right now. He's doing the a remake or uh, a sequel to Batman only with Lady Gaga. Ah. So they're uh, actually that's finished. I think they're finished actually doing it. It's in post. But um, I, I lost track of what I started to say. But uh, but it was his, it was he he was the one who started the book. He was the one who said you got to write this down. Well, I, I think I'm going to go pick it up because obviously I want to hear more of these great stories, and I think the people who are listening will love it too. Well, also yeah. it's something else. You will see a picture of the Phoenix Kids. When they when they were up in Murphy's, California, you'll see all the little kids with the mother and father. Oh, and right below that, you'll see a grown-up picture of Arlen. <laughs> Terrific. Well, we've been listening to Joel Thurm on Saturday night at the movies. Joel, I want to have you back because I, I, I've got other topics to discuss with you, particularly in, in some of your other film projects. And I want to hear more about producing because I've also been doing some producing and I, I, I think we could share some good thoughts. Um, You've been listening to Saturday Night at the Movies with Joel Thurm. Thank you so much, Joel. Thank you very much for having me. You know, I'll gladly come back. And one thing about producing, you don't need taste. You don't need a particular talent. You can hire those people. 
you have to be a great salesman. You have to, you have to, somehow you got to get that product. Then, then you can back out of the picture. <laughs> Thank seriously. You for that. Appreciate that. <laughs> okay. Ben, 